0: Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's no special announcements or anything, so let's just jump right in and see what's been going on. First up, developer Merzik has created a really cool way to back up and restore your Sega Saturn game save files via a custom adapter that plugs into the second controller port. This is a very cool and unique idea. The Saturn Shiro crew has a very detailed and awesome write-up right here on the site if you're interested in the full history and its evolution and all of the different things that it could do and they're aiming for. But basically it started out as kind of like a hobby project where you have to take a Saturn extension cord, hack it up, plug it into a custom board. But now it's in one really neat sandwich design, if you will, so you could just make your own PCBs and then insert your micro SD and use it that way. Uh, There's even a demo video available if you wanna get walked through exactly how to build one and use it up for backing up and restoring. So there's a ton of potential with stuff like this. First of all, if there's any possible way of being able to boot this without any kind of extra modding in there, then that would be such an easy way to just transfer saves. At the moment, it does require a pseudo Saturn Psi cart, which is either a flashed action replay or a red cart, which I think so many Saturn owners already have. So right off the bat, I think a lot of people would be able to utilize this. And of course, if you have an optical drive emulator, you could load the software that way. And there are some advantages and disadvantages maybe to using different methods of copying your saves and ODE software. But overall, I would just really recommend checking out the post, reading through everything. And we'll keep everybody updated as to where this thing progresses because there's potential for launching code directly from this. So that doesn't necessarily mean we'll ever get to launch games from it, but that could end up opening up the doors for some other pretty cool stuff so definitely check out the post from the shiro crew and uh, just thanks to Merzik for working on this because i'd love to see unique and just weird projects like this pop up out of nowhere a demo for a brand new dreamcast homebrew game called driving strikers was just released and while the game looks like a lot of fun it has one feature that has never been done before in dreamcast homebrew netplay So the game itself looks like a couple of micro machines driving around a field using their their cars to hit a soccer ball into the goal. It actually looks like a ton of fun if it were just this, but the ability to have net play is just such an awesome and amazing Dreamcast retro nerd bragging rights. And I'm so impressed that the team was able to pull it off. Now, while it is a demo at the moment, you could download that for free on the developer's Itch.io page. And of course, if you like it, consider supporting and throwing them a few bucks. But this will end up being a full game released next year that will also be released on Windows and Linux, including a Raspberry Pi build. So overall, this just looks like a ton of fun and something that any Dreamcast fan should at least look into. So please check out the Shiro Crew's post on this. Um, they had interviews with the developer and a bunch of other very cool tidbits in here and obviously follow the project on social media and stuff but i'm very impressed it looks cool even without that neat feature but the fact that there's netplay in this just makes it so unique and different so shout out to the team for doing this and of course as always thanks to the shiro crew for covering all this stuff in such awesome detail This week's podcast is once again sponsored by JLCPCB, and continuing where we've been off for the last two weeks, there are more issues that I found. One of them was my fault, and then one of them I still can't really figure out, so let me walk you all through it and see where we're at. Okay, so let's start out with the first mistake that I know that I made last week. We're obviously going to start by uploading the Gerber file, but what I forgot to do, because I was just kind of rushing through, was hit panel by customer, and then note that there are 10 columns and five rows. So that was the first thing that went wrong. And it's kind of embarrassing that I've done a bunch of these and and just never had that issue until now. So that's the first mistake. Then we're going to continue add PCB assembly, hit PCB assembly quantity two, because remember there's going to be 50 on each of these 10 by five. So we would have to make a hundred. So I definitely don't want to make five of them Uh, then confirm. And then on the next page, of course, you're going to go and upload your bill of materials and then the pick and place file. Then after that, you have to select the name for your project, which I'm still not 100% sure why they why they require this, but we're just going to enter that in. And then here is the second thing that I got wrong. And I'm still not 100% sure when you would want to select either of these. So I, I think... What this means file provided as complete file just proceed with my own files i'm pretty sure that means that your pick and place file says that each individual board has been specced out for the components so not just the one in the corner but all 10 columns and all five rows have information on what components go on each one of those whereas this piece single piece please help me repeat the data, is probably what most of us would be using because we really just want to spec out what's in the first PCB on this panel and then have them just repeat the data to the rest. So this was the issue that that I didn't realize I made for a couple of days, but after that, let's just continue on and see where we're at from here. So of course, there is now an inventory shortage on two products because that's exactly what happens today. But the cost of components seems unusually high. And I'm wondering if it's because we spec'd out components that have a minimum order of 5,000. And that is most likely an issue in the bill of materials. And I don't know if it's something that was previously available as singles and they changed it to only 5,000 because remember, part shortage, pretty much any rules go. So let's just try to replace them. This is a uh, 100 PF... 50 volt 0603 component, so we'll search for that and there are some in stock of this one so we'll hit select and the price on that uh, doesn't seem as expensive but let's go with the next one. Um, Search for this, same thing. Uh, 75 volt, let's just kind of check this out. Um, Inventory shortage on a lot of these. This does seem to be close. Yeah, I think this one will work. So I will select this and we could now proceed. Now that it's loaded, we'll zoom in and confirm. There's four little components. Everything seems to line up correctly. And the price of this is a little bit higher than I expected. So I'm not sure if it's because I'm making 100 of these, which would make perfect sense, or if I could have potentially spec'd out cheaper components or components with less of a lead on them. So this is kind of interesting. Now, in a situation like this, you have to decide, do I spend just a few dollars on panels and make it myself? Or do I really want to spend this much money on a prototype that you're not sure if it's even working yet? So at this point, I'm deciding to call it. I am going to stop going about trying to do the PCB assembly and just have some basic PCBs made and make it myself. There's three components on here, four components, so it's not a big deal. It's something I could definitely handle myself. And the most important point is I'm not 100% sure that these will work or if they'll work in all scenarios. So hand manufacturing two or three of these first then going back, figuring out what I did wrong and making a, a run of them that I could share with my modder friends and have them finish the testing. I think that is a much better use of my time and a much better use of JLCPCB's time because I don't want to keep going back and forth with my rep there to have all of these made just to find out that I made a mistake in the design or something like that. So I, I really wanted to add this perspective because even though I'm sure it's not exactly what JLCPCB would want me to say in these ads, I genuinely think, Think that when I make mistakes in these, it's equally as helpful as when it all goes right. Because if it's happening to me, it's absolutely going to be happening to you at some point. So uh, I'm going to swing back to this project in a couple of weeks after the bare PCBs arrive, and then go back and figure out what it is I did wrong. But anyway, shout out to JLCPCB for allowing me to do these the way I want, because I really like to keep this as something that I think we could all benefit from. So I'll swing back around next week with maybe a cool factory tour or something, and we'll get back around to this project after the prototypes are handmade. Back at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, Dave and Pat from the Shiro crew got to demo the upcoming Retrobit Saturn analog controllers. And there's a whole bunch of things to note about this. So if you were really fired up for it, or if you're a massive Saturn fan, I would strongly recommend reading every word of this post. I'm gonna kind of just skim through it, but my mini review of their review isn't going to do it justice. Basically, it's modeled after the Model 2 Saturn controller, which is kind of widely regarded as one of the best controllers of all time. And RetroBit's wired version of that is excellent. The wireless is hit or miss. I didn't have good luck with mine when I first got it, but I love my wired one. Same thing with the Genesis 6 button. I really think they did a good job with those. And the Saturn analog version is going to be a little bit different. So it's the same basic shape, it's a little bit bigger, but not super distracting. But it also has two analog sticks and two triggers on each side. And the analog sticks are made by the same company that makes the Switch Joy-Cons. So you could expect them to feel pretty much like that. It might even be the same exact controllers. No, no word if they're going to suffer from drift or anything, but. It really is going to come down to do your hands like these controllers and how does it perform in different applications? Because of course, and I mean this with zero sarcasm, Retrobit's not going to go through all of the development and trouble of making this just for the Saturn. They're going to make sure that it could be usable on multiple platforms to widen their audience. So that makes complete sense. The downside of that is if you are hoping for a direct replacement for the Saturn 3D controller, this isn't going to be it. Um, In the test that they did, the analog sticks don't exactly work the same way that the Saturn 3D pad does. So if you're a big fan of Knights or any of those style games, it's not quite going to be the same, at least yet. This is prototype. So who knows if they're going to work any of these bugs out or anything. And also the triggers don't feel the same and they're digital triggers, not analog. So there's just a few things about it that I guess if you never really used the Saturn 3D control pad, you could, pro- and especially if you like the Switch controller, you could probably walk up to this and go, hey, this thing's awesome. I love this controller. But if you've been gaming on the Saturn 3D pad only since the 90s, you're probably not gonna like it. So you, I would just recommend going through with an open mind. Um, there's a whole lot more info here in this post though. Pictures of prototype units, pictures of the one that they were testing, um, pictures of, of the stuff that they showed at the booth. So I would I would definitely check this out if you're interested in it. Uh, it has every detail that you can imagine, probably and then some. And it just, it seems like a controller that's pretty cool and I think will overall be, be appreciated by people that were looking for something like this. Also on a side note, it's good to know RetroBit's actually still doing some development and not just outsourcing stuff to clone companies. I just posted a review of the dual output HDMI component video box for the original Xbox from the Behar brothers called the Exedusa, And I'll give a mini review here, but I'll skip to the end first in case you're only mildly curious about this and then let you know when to skip to the next section if you're not, but basically, If you need a dual output solution for the Xbox, HDMI and component video, and you need it plug and play and you want it as small as possible, this is your only option, but it's also cheaper than every other alternative out there, but the video output's dim and it doesn't look like they're planning on fixing it. Turning up your brightness will fix that, but that could be kind of annoying depending on on how you approach this. So uh, if you don't really care anymore, skip to the next section. If you do, I'll go through my review and kind of tell you exactly what to expect. First, this is not a negative review, but as always, it's just blunt and everything that I, I felt when I was doing the review in real time. So it's a, r- a real reflection of my thoughts in that moment. Um, there's going to be some negative stuff, but I don't dislike this box. So I just, you know, obviously expect some some thumbs down because I'm, I'm prefacing it with that. But the first thing I noticed, which was very disappointing, is that all this thing needed was some feet on the back two screws. Basic rubber feet where you remove the screws, you put these feet with the screws in them in its place, and it would have had a lot more support. It doesn't have that, it hangs out the back. And I will admit that it didn't seem like there was a lot of pressure being put on the AV jack when I had both component video and HDMI connected, but there's obviously some pressure and probably more so than you would have just by plugging in a regular cable. So that one was kind of disappointing because that would have raised the price of this like maybe a dollar. <laughs> so hopefully the Behar brothers will consider um, offering that in future revisions or something like that. And if not, it's something that you could definitely find yourself. I am absolutely garbage at tracking down screws. If you're good at this, please let me know and maybe we could figure out which ones to, to link to in the post for people. Um, I used to Side note, I used to go to McMaster car all the time for screws and I learned how to use their website, but that was when I had a job where a lot of these things that you buy are a minimum order of a thousand, but we had an assembly facility. So if I needed one screw and the minimum order was a thousand, we were probably going to use 3000 anyway, a lot different when I'm trying to buy for, for a test here. So if anybody could help with that, um, I could update the post and put a link in the description, but very small, cheap thing that I think would be an upgrade to this. You of course could just jam a piece of cardboard underneath, wrap your HDMI cable under, whatever you gotta do. But that was just the first glaring thing because I, I, I really thought that wouldn't have been something to worry about. And the the next thing is the brightness issue. Now, if you're watching this on video, uh, I don't even really need to click on this to zoom in. It's pretty apparent. I tested the Chimeric plug-and-play HDMI solution, which looked pretty much like the Make Megahertz internal solution. Obviously, any digital-to-digital solution is gonna have zero noise. These uh, I wanted to do an apples-to-apples comparison, so both the Behar Brothers, Exodusa, and the Chimeric are analog-to-digital converters. And it was noticeably darker and maybe a little bit softer, maybe not as sharp, but that was so much less noticeable to be honest to the point where if they were exactly equal in brightness, maybe that would have even kind of helped so that kind of uh, that kind of was disappointing now I-, I did take a look at the board. I could probably replace three of the resistors going from the output to the input chip that splits the signal and probably lower the or raise the brightness, lower the resistance. But I just I don't have time to do that. And I don't know if the Behar brothers would even consider changing the design. So hopefully they'll they'll kind of go back and put this on a scope and see if they could fix it. But it really is just brightness. There's no safety issue. There's no problems. There's no hum or buzz or beeping. Everything everything works fine. It's just dim. So if you don't mind just constantly turning your brightness up and down on whether it's your capture card, your TV, whatever, then it's a non-issue. Now, all the good sides. It is a true digital to digital audio circuit. So the audio that you're getting through the HDMI cable and through the SPDIF port is true digital from the Xbox AV port. That's notable because some of those cheap, crappy adapters take analog audio and convert it to digital uh, on their HDMI outputs, which I just don't even know why they would do that. Just goes to show you the lack of knowledge for companies. They can't even tap the signals that are already there. So those, those clone companies really are terrible in every way but the Exodusa is built properly in that regard and you're getting true digital audio and also the com- uh, component video out YPbPr is available at the exact same time as the HDMI and brightness is not affected voltage is not affected which means they properly buffered uh, buffered the circuit so that it's not like using a Y cable the example I always tell you not to do with video it is properly built that way so you're able to do true dual output or one at at a time, or analog and digital audio at the same time, doesn't matter. If the ports are there, you could use them all, whatever. It'll just totally work. So that was always a big plus. And I did test every single resolution that the Xbox supports, 480i, 480p, 720p, 1080i, and it worked totally fine with all of those. So basically, if you were just looking for a really high quality plug and play HDMI solution, I would say, Go to the chimeric, I think they've been out of stock for a long time, but part shortage, right? It's nobody's fault. Um, if you were looking for both outputs, I would evaluate what parts you already have and kind of go from there. You know, if you already had a really good Xbox component video cable, one of the official Microsoft or uh, a monster cable, then maybe just look into getting a cheap analog to digital converter for 20 bucks, plug it into that, and then it'll probably be about the same, but the brightness. Would be correct, um, or of course, if you already have one of those consoles for you, Xbox to Wii adapters, you could use some really good shielded HD Retrovision Wii component cables. That's always a good solution as well, and the digital output on that is also true digital. So shocking that I even have to mention that. I blame the clone companies and the clone cables for that. But so overall, I was I could say I was disappointed with the Exodusa because brightness and, and feet for support seemed like things that are pretty easy, um, but Overall, I don't think it's a bad product at all, and I think especially if you're looking for both outputs and you don't have any cables for your Xbox, this is definitely going to be cheaper than getting multiple other solutions or trying to figure out a way to split signals or do any of that stuff. So. I would kind of just take a look at the main Xbox page, which is going to be confusing because there's there's different solutions. You can't just look at the top, like with the Super Nintendo RGB cables. You really got to read through the full Xbox page on retro RGB to get a sense of what's the best solution for you. But I would kind of let that all sink in, figure out what your setup's like and make the decision then. So this thing's not bad, but it definitely could use some feet and the brightness thing. So hopefully... Hopefully people will still like it and at least take advantage of the dual output capabilities. Pre-orders are now open for a vinyl version of the Resident Evil soundtrack from PlayStation 1. And there's a few things to note about this one. First, there are standard and limited editions available, which I always think is cool. People who just want the soundtrack at standard, if it's your favorite game and you love collecting at the limited. But also their 2019 release was based on the 2002 GameCube version soundtrack. This is specifically based on the 1996 original PlayStation 1 version. And it's also expanded with the 96 arranged Resident Evil soundtrack remix. There are some edits on here, so I just would really suggest going through Crystal's post, and of course the the main page as well, and decide if this is for you, if one of the other versions is better for what you were looking to get, and just kind of know for sure what it is that you're getting. But obviously there's a lot of people out there that are huge fans of vinyl video game soundtracks, and if you're one of them, definitely check this out and see if any of the options are for you. The game Haunted Halloween 86 is getting an NES cartridge release and a vinyl soundtrack release. I remember hearing about this game, but I I honestly can't remember much else about it. In fact, maybe we covered it here on the podcast over the past couple of years, but this is an NES game that is now having a physical release on a cartridge. There are two different versions. You can get a gray version or a pumpkin orange version, and there's also a vinyl soundtrack to go with it. So uh, the soundtrack comes with an instant digital download code, and it's a a 12-inch LP. It's one of the smaller ones, but... Overall, I mean, it just kind of looks neat. It kind of looks exactly like something you would want from a retro release like that. Soundtrack, the game, uh, you know, just everything all in one. But what are all your thoughts on the game? Has anybody played it? Uh, anybody have any any thoughts or particular feelings on it? I just, I remember hearing about it but I just I can't remember anything else about it. So so no, no disrespect whatsoever to the team or the game, but uh, it looked neat. So uh, I'm happy to share it here and shout out to John for passing this one along to me. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these. And if you hear anything that piques your interest, please check out Lou's video for all the details. Uh, first up, the clean sweep core has all of the controls done and some bugs are being fixed, but there's more testing to come. Otego is uh, had to delay the release of OutRun because it looks like some sprites were causing issues, but I think he seems to have gotten over it and we're showing pictures of it running on the analog pocket as well. So hopefully cross your fingers for a beta release for that one. Some work in progress posts have been shown for the Zane Slena core, probably not pronouncing that correctly, my apologies. Um, Mr. Add-Ons has aluminum cases in stock and ready for sale. There's even a new red color that's very cool. So if you are looking for these all aluminum fanless cases, definitely pick this up. And no, you do not need a fan in them. I don't mean any disrespect by that. I just hear so many people saying, oh, that's a dangerous design. You need a fan. You don't. It's been thoroughly tested. I've owned a couple. It's totally fine. And if you like that style case, it's awesome. Definitely pick one up. A laser disc core, which looks to be an FPGA port of the Daffy emulator, is in development, which is pretty awesome. Because, uh, you know, a quick aside here: I'm a huge fan of the Doomsday Duplicator project, which is a group of people that are looking to take laser discs and completely scan them. For lack of of easier explanation to that. To get as much of the data off as possible and then basically scan that into a giant file and then you could then do what you want with it, compress it down, use some different software to extract it. But one of the things that the team always talked about was a potential way to play those back through something like an FPGA board in order to emulate the exact experience of the original. So it works the same. The controls would be the same. You're just playing it off of a ripped version rather than the original. So that would be pretty cool. Uh, I, I really would like to, to see something like that. I'm sure this is focused more towards Laserdisc games, but it can't be that far of a stretch. So fingers crossed. Uh, Pierco is also working on the game or the arcade game Express Raider by Data East. Super early in development, but that seems to be coming there is the developer of the pcxt core held a vote on whether to use a new menu or not and the new menu system looks similar to the ao486's core so that's something that you should kind of check out and if you're a fan of that maybe kind of figure out what's the the best way to go about doing it the Ypsilon has released update all version 2.0 and i have some good news i have tested this on four different misters now here's your upgrade process if you already use update all Run it twice. That's it. Nothing else. You don't have to log into it. You don't have to remove the micro SD card. Just make sure you're connected to the internet. Run it twice. And of course, if you're building a new mister, just download the latest version. And I guess if you wanted to, you could always just manually overwrite it. But I I just, I have so much appreciation for developers that make it so easy to do updates like this. So thank you very much. And uh, I've been testing it. Works absolutely great. There's a few more additions to it and a few things that you should definitely look into if you use any of the arcade cores. Uh, There's also been some updates to the Master System, Game Boy, and a few other, cor- uh, course. So definitely check out Lou's post. Uh, and as always, thanks so much to Lou for keeping up with all of this, because if it wasn't for him, I would be just as lost as I normally am with all of these updates. So please, please remember to subscribe to Lou. A couple of announcements regarding the 3DO ODE project from Fixel. First and foremost, both the internal and external plug-and-play version are now on sale. There's a Halloween sale. Check out the discount codes right here in the post. And uh, if you were looking to buy one of these and you wanted a few bucks off, now there's no reason to wait. You can get a discount on it. Also, there was a new firmware update that allows the external version to have pretty much 100% compatibility. The entire Redump set is now playable through it. I did that live stream that I I had to delete a while back because I kept getting hit with copyright strikes for a couple of seconds, the road rash music here and there. It's kind of annoying, but um, all all of the games work completely now, so that is pretty awesome. Updating is basically just as easy as dropping the update file on the root of the SD card, booting, hitting X, and then hitting update ODE. Can't really get any easier than that. There's also some additions to this firmware to help compatibility with people that have one single capacitor that is failing on their 3DO, which is a very common issue. It's basically the reset capacitor. So if you open up your 3DO, it's the one that's right next to the eject button and the firmware update should help a lot with this. But if you have any issues, you should really consider replacing it because it's very easy. It'll take much longer to disassemble and reassemble than it will to replace it. And of course, it's always the same when it comes to these retro consoles. Take your time to open it, grab a flashlight, and look at the capacitors. If they're leaking, which I don't think I've seen 3DOs of leaking caps, but if they're leaking... Consider this an emergency, contact a modder, get it cleaned up, get it properly recapped. Otherwise that leaky capacitor juice will eventually wear through the motherboard and it'll be permanently damaged forever. But if you open up your 3DO, you don't have the time or or patience or whatever else to recap the whole thing and doesn't look like it's leaking anywhere. You could very easily replace this one capacitor and not have any of the weird reset issues anymore. Um, I've replaced two so far. They were both very easy. I didn't see anything leaking underneath it. Um, The only thing there was just flux from, uh, from a previous cap replacement. But basically just snip the pins, heat them up with your iron, grab them out with some tweezers, carefully, whenever you do stuff like that, whenever you do cap replacements like that, you have to make sure that there's almost no pressure when you're pulling that leg out. Cause remember you don't want to accidentally rip up a trace. All you're doing is waiting till it's basically not even able to hold up and then just sliding it right out and then do the opposite, put the new one back in, make sure ground is in the right spot, snip any excess off the bottom and you're done. It really should be an incredibly easy mod. And the only other thing to note is Remember where everything is when you're taking it apart, because almost every single time I reassemble a 3DO, I put a screw in a place where it shouldn't be so that when I go to put the next component over it, I then notice that the screw is there and I got to take it apart again to move it. And I also almost always forget to put one of the light pipes back or something. So just pay attention to the order that you take things apart and uh, where the screws go really is super easy. So uh, that's awesome that we were able to figure that out. You could replace the capacitor with the exact one that was there, a 22 microfarad, five volt. However, any 20 to 100 microfarad, minimum 10 volt cap should be okay. I luckily just had pretty much the same thing available and everything seemed to work. But uh, so overall, I think this is awesome. I'm obviously a big fan of the project because I have talked about it quite a few times, but just having the ability to take Optical drive emulator and plug it in the back of a 3DO and not worry about installation at all is such an awesome thing. And of course, if you have one with a dead drive, installing it internally is an awesome bonus because you don't have anything hanging out the back. But I I love that there's options. I love that this exists. And uh, thanks to Fixel for posting all of this info and especially for working with me on the cap thing because I just thought that was good info that people might want to be aware of if they have, at the very least, FZ1 3DOs because those are the two that I had worked on recently that had. issue. Well, that's it for this week. As always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way, because you are the ones who are keeping all of this going. Without you, there is no website, no podcast, none of the -the behind-the-scenes research, reviews, or guides, or anything. So, thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.